Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Christian Parenti, talking about his new book, Radical Hamilton, an attempt to reclaim the founding father from the bankers and Clinton Democrats as someone who could teach us a lot about economic policy today, especially as we face the climate crisis, which means a whole new approach to industrialization that market processes won't deliver on their own. First, a few words in the economy, which by most measures continues to crawl back slowly from the depths, but remains in a big hole. There was some excitement last week when new applications for unemployment insurance, initial claims in the jargon, fell below one million for the first time since mid-March, though it wasn't much below a million. As we learned on Thursday morning, claims were back in the seven figures last week at 1.1 million, bringing the total number of applications since the crisis began to well over 57 million. That doesn't mean that there are 57 million unemployed people. Many were either recalled to their old jobs or found new ones. But the number of unemployed remains very high. The number of people drawing benefits under traditional state programs was just under 15 million, well off the mid-May peak of almost 22 million, but still well over twice as high as the record level before the corona crisis hit. That record, by the way, was set in May 2009, during the crisis that used to be known as the Great Recession. Additionally, over 11 million people are drawing benefits under the special pandemic program, which covers people like freelancers who aren't eligible for traditional unemployment insurance. Add those together and throw in a few other miscellaneous unemployment insurance schemes and you've got over 28 million beneficiaries. That's over 16 times the number drawing benefits a year ago. So while things are somewhat less dire than they were a few months ago, they're still quite dire. And we don't have any rigorous reports yet of how people are doing now that the $600 a week supplemental benefits have ended. Not very well, I'm guessing. But yay, that stock market is just doing great. Apple became the first company whose total stock outstanding is worth over $2 trillion. Apple is the most prominent of the stock market stars these days. But almost all the energy driving the market to record levels is concentrated in a handful of tech stocks, to Apple add names like Google and Amazon. The rest of the market is basically flat or down. So even at the level of the capital markets, inequality and wealth concentration rule the day. This doesn't seem either rational or sustainable. And now on to Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton got turned into a posthumous celebrity with that musical, which laundered the reputation of a bunch of slave-owning plutocrats by turning them into cool black rappers. The musical, though, didn't inspire much serious interest in Hamilton's ideas. For that, we can turn to Christian Parenti's new book, Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, just out from Verso. Parenti, who teaches economics at John Jay College in Manhattan, pays particular attention to Hamilton's report on manufacturers, written while he was Treasury Secretary and presented to Congress in 1791. In it, Hamilton proposed a set of policies, like tariffs and subsidies, to encourage domestic economic development. These policies were opposed by the likes of Jefferson, the ancestor of small government Southern conservatism. By an irony of history, Jefferson is portrayed as the Democrat and Hamilton as the elitist. Their actual political legacies are more complicated than that, as we'll hear. Christian Parenti. One of the things that's interesting about the book is how much of a problem the South has been throughout history. The opposition to a centralizing state, which you know originally turned in their fear of abolition of slavery, but you know this this impulse lingers to today. What's your understanding of this lingering power of the South into you know the twenty first century? To begin in the beginning, I mean, what the problem with the the, the issue with the South then was as you said, fear that the central government would encroach upon slavery. In the Constitutional Convention, John Rutledge of South Carolina, when the question of banning the slave trade altogether, he says, you know, that morals has nothing to do with this. Interest alone governs. And the the whole question here is whether the southern states will even be part of this compact or not. So from the very beginning, the slave states were very concerned with their prerogatives, and that had to do partly with the fear of encroaching abolition, because already by the time of the end of the American Revolution, there are several states that have outlawed slavery, and there are several others that are on the way to doing that. But it also had to do with taxing this property. The southern elites didn't want their property taxed, and 
it had to be taxed for the interests of the central government. That's one of the things that Jefferson undoes when he comes to power in 1800 is he eliminates internal taxes, which included taxes on slaves. So there's that political tradition and trying to protect and build a kind of veto power through the Senate and uh, controlling the presidency. But then after the Civil War, uh, you know, I mean, elsewhere, not in this book, but in an article, that, a chapter that's coming out in a Festschiefs for Mike Davis published by uh, Orr Books, I actually have a chapter on precisely the question you asked about the South up to the present. And I, mean, I think it has to do with the kind of maximalist ideology that develops out of slavery, but then also just out of the postbellum labor regimes of the South, and that elites in the South have been concerned with domination and the maximum control of labor, fear of the slippery slope. You see that today in things like uh, the total opposition to unionization. Tennessee had a deal, like a $1.3 billion expansion of a VW plant. And VW was prepared to recognize the United Auto Workers Union. And the governor of Tennessee said, if you recognize this union, we're withdrawing our subsidies. And so that plant in Tennessee is apparently one of the only VW plants in the world to not have a union. So you know you can't reduce it to slavery. It's, it's about a kind of maximalist labor management that developed out of the South. Uh, and I mean, that is rooted also in just the vision of the South can go back to David Hackett Fisher's classic sort of, you know, mainstream, but not at all incompatible with a materialist analysis book, Albion Seed, Four British Folkways in America. And Jamestown and then South Carolina were founded explicitly as societies of, quote-unquote, big men and little men, of haves and have-nots. They wanted to reproduce a society of gentry and servants, the whole thing was designed to be like that. The way they gave out land from the very beginning was in these enormous chunks that rewarded people who brought over indentured servants and then later slaves. So to some extent, this sort of uh, maximalist politics from, of Southern elites is baked into the project from the very beginning. And Hamilton confronts that. The formation of Hamilton. He was a young man, early 20s, uh, was uh, a commander in the army of the revolution, but then moved up the ranks. His experience of the revolution really shaped his view of the world, his concern about the anarchic tendencies within the structure of the states and such. So how, how was Hamilton shaped by that experience in his, his early youth? So at first, he, you know, he's an immigrant, comes, he's studying at what's now Columbia. The war starts, gets involved in the military effort. At first, he's on the front lines as an artillery officer, but then after... Two years of that, he is um, promoted to Washington's staff. And from that vantage point, he gets to see the entire operations of the war, both military and economic and logistic and political. And he sees the total dysfunction that the states are, even as they're in a, a military compact together, are competing against each other. States are, the Congress doesn't have the power to tax. Congress is the only national institution there is and has to make requests of states for supplies for the Continental Army. And then states will provide these supplies, but would frequently like, you know, want to channel it to just their their own troops. And all of this comes to a head, actually. I, I, I argue that Hamilton has a nervous breakdown. It seems to be a nervous breakdown, something the literature on Hamilton has never pointed out. All this comes to a head after the Battle of Saratoga. So the Continental Army is just losing one battle after another, retreating out. They lose New York, and they retreat through New Jersey down into Pennsylvania. And in the winter of 1777, going into 78, they're at Valley Forge. Congress has been run out of Philadelphia, and the Continental Army, the main body of the Continental Army, is sort of blocking and protecting Congress from the British who are in Philadelphia. There are a couple other generals further north, and a British army comes down from Canada and is intercepted at Saratoga, New York, by General Gates and is defeated, and all of their armaments are captured. And this is a great boon for the cause. It becomes the basis for a big European loan. But General Gates and another general up north, Putnam, begin to go rogue and start planning their own military operations, contemplating uh, their own assault on New York and 
Washington wants some of these captured weapons, and you know, you could say part of this is just Washington wanting to maintain his power, which is certainly part of it, but also he had the legitimate uh, concern of guarding the government. And Gates and Putnam are, are not interested in this. Washington sends Hamilton up to, to get these guys to come to heel, which he, he's like 23 years old. He does this. He manages to bring, bring these generals to their senses and then has this massive breakdown, a, a quote-unquote nervous fever, in which he's described as delusional and ranting, and he's out of commission for two months. And after that nervous fever, which sounds a lot like some sort of nervous breakdown, his writing is very different than it was before that. Before that, he, he, he sort of had this boilerplate boy Democrat. You know, he was writing things that sounded a lot like the sort of arguments made by Thomas Jefferson. After that breakdown, he starts writing a series of letters to elites that lay out essentially the plan for the Constitution, which is to build a new strong central state, to build a kind of fiscal military state and a modern financial system to build the basis for kind of modern government economic planning. And his experience in the war shapes all that because he sees again and again the risk of disintegration and the threat of local power. So he comes out of the war with a very jaundiced view of the local. Uh, he has real contempt for state governments and the kind of people who populate them. These are not yeoman farmers controlling most of these state governments. They're, they're local gangs of local plutocrats pursuing their parochial interests. <laughs> it's not, not much has changed since then, it seems. No, it hasn't. And that's part of why you know Hamilton actually proposed abolishing states altogether. And while there would be problems attendant to that, it also would have avoided the Civil War and minority rule by presidents such as George W. Bush and Donald Trump, who lose the popular vote, but win the electoral college, which is controlled by states. So the other thing that Hamilton learns from his experience in the war is the way that government can shape economic activities and drive uh, economic transformation and, and get directly involved in manufacturing. The government has several armories are set up during the war. And he also begins to have an experiential knowledge of the power of the state as a financial force in, in printing money and borrowing and attempting to pay off its debts. I'm speaking with Christian Parenti, author of Radical Hamilton from Verso. Well, and they certainly did a lot of that during the war. And when the war is over, the U.S. was pretty much a wreck. Inflation, depression, debt overhang, lots of worthless uh, money floating around, worthless securities floating around. What was uh, Hamilton's understanding of how one needed to deal with that wreckage? So, yeah, this is the, the critical period, which we now recognize is as bad a depression really as the Great Depression. Uh, the war was an economic stimulus. There's, you know, all these foreign armies bringing in foreign hard currency, enormous amounts of demand for everything from, you know, lead and, and guns to clothing and fodder for animals. All that stops with peace. The economy contracts. And then among the other things that happen, states are beginning little trade wars with each other. Violence flares all over the place on the frontiers, in particularly in what's now Kentucky. Yeah, there are lots of mini civil wars going on, right? Yeah. You know, violence between Native Americans and, and white settlers out west, there's but there's also like rival groups of speculators sending settlers into the Wyoming Valley where you've got kind of Connecticut-based uh, speculators and Philadelphia-based speculators fighting it out through these different groups of settlers they send in there. There are maroon communities in the south that are fighting for their autonomy and threatening the stability of elites down there. And there's no national government that's capable of dealing with this or of reviving the economy. And so Hamilton wants to create a central government, and then he wants that central government to have the power to create a central bank that will be partially public-owned and to have the power to engage in economic planning so as to drive forward a, an economic transformation from an agrarian-dependent economy to a manufacturing-based economy. So the first thing that happens is there are all these, all the states have debts. And so the constitutional convention happens in reaction to all this crisis. So the, the culminating crisis of all this is Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts 
which begins in 1786 and wraps up in the spring of 1787, literally as the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia is starting. Part of what fuels that also is a cooling trend and very wet and cold winters and summers associated with two massive volcanic eruptions in 1783 in Japan and in Iceland. And, and then Congress is trying to pay off these debts and, and the various states are trying to pay off its debts. And many of these debts have been uh, accumulated in the hand of very, uh, hands of very few speculators. For, in Mass- for example, in Massachusetts, 35 men owned most of like over half of the debt. And the state is trying to extract money to give to Congress so Congress can pay off its debts. And it's also trying to pay off its own debts. And that's part of what triggers Shays' Rebellion amidst this bad weather and therefore bad harvest. And so it's in reaction to all this that the Constitutional Convention finally comes together. And Hamilton is one of the proponents of this, along with Madison, who will then quickly turn against the strong central state. But at that time, his mentor, Thomas Jefferson, is away in Paris, and Madison is not the kind of political figure he will become later. They collaborated in the Federalist Papers, right? Yes, and and the Federalist Papers, which were written to argue for the ratification of the Constitution. So the Constitution is written in the summer of 1787, but then it takes two years to get it ratified. The agreement is 13 states go to this convention. Vermont's not yet recognized as a state. The agreement is that if nine states ratify, then all agree to participate. And it's a struggle to get nine states to ratify the Constitution. And the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, have to be added on as a guarantee to get them, to get them ratified. So Hamilton is, is crucial in, sort of, in, in, in making sure that this central government that is created in the Constitution has the power to act economically, to tax and spend, to borrow, and also to plan and invest, build roads, own part of a bank. Yeah, this is Section 8 of Article 1. Is that the word? Yeah, Article 1, Section 8, which enumerates what Congress can do. Which includes the post office very much in the news now. Yes, and that the postal clause says, um, you know, includes building postal roads, which is very key. Benjamin Franklin wanted the postal clause to include canals and be more explicit but was defeated. But just getting the word Rhodes in there was important because then what happens after Hamilton's death, you know, all through the early 19th century, the post office is basically a big public works agency. It builds most of the roads in the country. It builds numerous canals. And very crucially, it clears thousands of miles of rivers. We think of rivers as just sort of passive natural features, but actually a lot of the rivers in the Midwest and the South were unnavigable because they were tangled with fallen trees, et cetera, et cetera. And they had to be cleared at tremendous public expense for those areas to be opened up to economic development for better and for worse. Yeah, the post office actually did a lot more than just deliver the mail. It it was a public works agency. Also, getting the, the general welfare clause in there was very contentious and very important, you know giving Congress the right to tax and to spend for the national defense and the general welfare. And the Jeffersonians w- did not like that term. And Jefferson, when he gets back, says to Washington, it's like, you know, that, that, that he, he correctly points out the general welfare is a loophole big enough to basically drive anything through. I mean, I mean you, you could do anything you want under, under that uh, language. And, and that was exactly the point. I mean, the punchline here is that even the U.S. Constitution, stodgy old U.S. Constitution, actually has enough play in it for some pretty socialistic economic planning and development. And in fact, the, the, the real history of capitalism is that it has been largely driven by this kind of hidden socialism. As Adolf Reed, uh, when I sent him a copy of the book, he, he, he responded by saying that one of, his, one of the questions he would ask PhD students was Hamiltonianism has triumphed at the level of policy. Jeffersonianism has triumphed at the level of ideology explained. But that really sums it up. I mean, the course of American economic development has been through this kind of hidden Hamiltonianism, even as ideologically what triumphs is this sort of Jeffersonian ideology of states' rights, 
free trade, small government, fear of finance, uh, fear of deficit spending. But that is not in reality what has driven American development. Hamilton got a lot of what he wanted in the last decade or so of the, ni- uh, the 18th century, right, until uh, Jefferson came in. Yeah. The, the standard story about the report. So the way this book started was I stumbled upon mention of the report and was trying to find out more about it because it sounded semi-socialistic, sort of developmentalist, and uh, couldn't find that much. The standard story is that the report was defeated. But actually, a lot of what the report advocated, tariffs, direct subsidies, government quality control regulations, investment in R&D, on and on and on, the whole, whole toolbox of government policies that Hamilton called the means proper. A lot of this is actually delivered by the federal government. And then very much so after the revolution of 1800, which is Jefferson's election, at the state level. And this is how States pursue economic development from you know 1800 to the Civil War. It's that's at this kind of state level Hamiltonianism. So you know, and then the Civil War is nothing but Hamiltonianism. I mean, it's that war is essentially like the South pursues a kind of Jeffersonian vision of government, and the North pursues a Hamiltonian vision of government, and then the North wins because its economy functions and grows, whereas the South's falls apart under hyperinflation and lack of any kind of real um, financial structure. That was the first part of my interview with Christian Parenti, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College and author of Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder, just out from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Geld, the German word for money, by the German band Malaria. And now back to my interview with Christian Parenti, author of Radical Hamilton from Verso. Well, you paint a picture of uh, Jefferson's presidency as, uh, as a disaster and ending in the War of 1812, uh, which is also a disaster, perhaps not widely appreciated enough. So what's that story? Yeah. So Jefferson cuts all these taxes. All internal taxes are eliminated when he gets in. That's usually cast as sort of, you know, these regressive taxes on alcohol and paper. But it was also taxes on houses, carriages, and slaves, these taxes that fell upon elites. So he removes all that. So revenue is considerably diminished. He cuts the Navy uh, and the Army massively. And I would love to do that now. But at this time, you know, this is a a fledgling kind of post-colonial state, and there could be consequences for that. And sure enough, there are. The British start harassing American shipping, boarding American ships, and arresting sailors because they're British subjects. They're not citizens at, at this point. It's like in you know 1805, you didn't have the right to leave and not be a British subject anymore. You were essentially property of the crown. And so they would, they would take sailors that they thought were British, and um, they were making it harder and harder for American shipping. Jefferson foolishly embargoes Britain that, that has some positive effects on American manufacturing, but generally leads to an economic crisis and has to be abandoned. Madison comes in, and at this point, you know, the British are landing in American ports and demanding resupply, and there's a riot in Virginia, and Madison declares war. 
And the War of 1812 commences, which is a sordid affair that involves a lot of brutality by American troops going into Canada and burning towns and stuff like that. And the British come in and burn Washington, D.C. under Admiral Coburn, the forebearer of the Coburn clan of journalists, Alexander Andrew, Patrick, Olivia Wilde, the actress, Laura Flanders, all direct descendants of this, the youngest admiral in, Amer in uh, British history. And Coburn comes ashore and is described as gleeful in his vengeance and, you know, with Mongolian zeal, burning that, burning the White House and burning that, the House of Representatives. And, I mean, the whole thing could have been smashed to pieces at that point. But the British were exhausted from fighting Napoleon. And, I mean, they had really been at war constantly since the 1750s. And... And it was just determined that it wasn't worth the trouble to recolonize the U.S. And so it was really very lucky that this whole project even survived that moment. And, and part, of, part of how I framed the book in the beginning is by you know, briefly comparing it with Simon Bolivar's attempts to build a continental-wide republic in Latin America. And it's just sort of assumed that oh, naturally that fails and fragments and uh, – under development ensues. And naturally, the U.S., of course, became this continental scale state and it has this massive economy that is innovative, et cetera, et cetera, has been at least up until recently, right? And I agree that it's not at all natural that the U.S. very easily could have succumbed to the paranoid visions in, laid out in the Federalist Papers of fragmenting and falling into disunion. I mean, that does happen, in fact, in the form of the Civil War, and that it was not luck or anything innate, but it was the triumph of a kind of rational politics that used state power to transform the economy and to bind the, the, the disparate pieces of this country, its various sections and local interests together through a national project of economic development and continual transformation. And so the punchline, to some extent, for our use is that, like, you know, looking at climate change, you know, we could do worse and look back at the beginning and figure out how, how do we get out of the, that, that original jam. Might yeah, help us. I want to return to that at the end, but uh, a few more things about Hamilton himself. Going back to uh, his vision of developmentalism, he had a really modern view of state credit as a, a cornerstone of financial and economic development, what we'd call today the treasury bond market, which is the center of the financial system for the U.S. and effectively the world. Yeah, what was his vision? Why was it so important to establish this uh, state credit? Yeah. To some extent, he's, you know, he's drawing on an insight from Adam Smith. He, he attacks Adam Smith in the opening of, of the report. But you know, Smith makes the point that when facing war, a government has to borrow, that there's just not enough surplus on hand to meet the, the exigencies of war. And so every to maintain sovereignty and national defense, a government must have good credit because it will have to borrow. So Hamilton was very concerned with that. He was aware that even if the economy was wealthy and the, uh, you know, the economic and financial situation of the state was sound, there were going to be moments when it was necessary to borrow enormous amounts of money. And so to do that, this central government had to have good credit. So what he does is he, instead of paying off all of these debts from the Revolutionary War, which is the effort of all these states, as part of the, the new government coming out of the Constitution, he gets the federal government to assume all of these state debts and also... Which was seen by many as a gift to the rich at the time, right? Yes. And it... I mean, it was a gift to the rich, but so so would have been paying off those debts. I mean, there, there's discussion of how that there should have been some sort of reckoning and, and that the, the speculators who accumulate this debt should have been, you know, not paid full value. And there should have been some effort to trace down all of the different parties that were issued this debt originally. That would have been completely impossible in the 18th century to have done as, as a kind of accounting exercise. So Hamilton consolidates all of the state's debts. He pays off their debts and in exchange. They give the federal government their existing – the states, that is, give the federal government their western land claims. 
the federal government then uses this this Western land as essentially a collateral for a foreign loan that it then reinflates the national economy with, and it has simultaneously established its power to tax and also, very crucially, its ability to tax. So it has Hamilton as Treasury Secretary is building a fleet of 11 Coast Guard cutters to enforce the tax regime. They confront these poor and sympathetic farmers in Western in Western Pennsylvania during a whiskey rebellion who were refusing to pay their taxes. But, you know, they had to pay their taxes. And the, the federal response was heavy-handed. But parties to this whole thing could not be allowed to not pay their taxes. So the government also has this ability to collect taxes, and it uses the federal debt as a guaranteed investment. It offers 6%. This is what Hamilton calls the funded debt. So if you buy federal debt, you're promised 6% return. And this is at a time when in Europe, most uh, returns were 4%. And the state, the central state thereby establishes this good credit and it is uh, borrowing and taxing and paying off its borrowed money and, um, you know, investing it. And the sum total is that actually the overall tax burden for regular people goes way down. And it also, this funded debt provides the basis for the national credit system, along with the central bank. Yeah, the central bank, of course, uh, he fought, fought hard for that disappeared for a while. Why, why was the central bank so important? The central bank was important because there was, there was no banking before the revolution. By the end of the revolution, there's these three very small private banks, and they are not at all commensurate to the needs of the economy nor to the needs of this central government. So a central bank was absolutely essential for creating a, a national credit system that involves other private banks. So it becomes the kind of the skeleton for the whole integrated national credit system. So going ahead a bit, uh, his legacy, of course, well, there's the, the almost perpetual Hamilton versus Jefferson fight throughout American history. But uh, it's an interesting moment in the early 1860s with the South out of the picture. Congress of 1861-63 passed with the Homestead Act, Railroad Legislation, the Morrill Act. What was important about that legislation? So that builds the, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad. I mean, and crucial to know is that all of the canals and all of the railroads built in this country were built with federal subsidies and other public subsidies. The, the Erie Canal sets this off, and the, uh, Jefferson is president. He won't give money, but his treasury secretary, Albert Gallatin, gives land to New York to build the Erie Canal. And the Erie Canal proves to be a very wise public investment. And then canal building mania begins. And anytime canals are attempted by private interests alone, they fail. So it's understood there has to be public subsidy to this. So this struggles along and fits and starts at the state level. But when the South leaves the federal government it, with the beginning of the Civil War, suddenly the path is open for these more Hamiltonian developmentalist forces that remain in the House and Senate to push through their, their developmentalist agenda. So they build the Transcontinental Railroad based on subsidized federal credit plus gifts of federal land. The Morrell Act creates the land-grant colleges, which are the basis of all of the big state university systems. And the Homestead Act gives several million acres to, I think it's over like 2 million people. And it's, it's given out to individuals regardless of race or gender. Now, there's lots of corruption that, that attends all of this stuff, probably least of all the universities. But you know, it's not like these efforts are without their problems, but they were also effective in developing this capitalist economy. And my point is not to laud capitalism, but merely to excavate the way in which capitalism is very much built by the state. The capitalism can be seen as, from its origins, uh, very much a state project, that, that the interests of government actually do a lot to ensure the development of a so-called market economy. War, too, because you say war is to capitalism as pawns are to frogs. Uh, the, the, so much of what we think of as modern capitalism has been framed by war. Yes. War is the moment of crisis that causes the state to realize it needs 
a financial system to borrow from. And even if it has to simultaneously kind of beforehand build that financial system. And war is the crisis that, that makes states realize that they need a wealthy economy to tax and that they need an industrial base to summon forth the armaments from. And those, those things don't exist without careful gardening and you know, um, crafting by the public sector. So that's, I mean, that's sort of, a, I suppose, like a theoretical subtext of this whole thing is trying to rethink this relationship between the public and private sector, because the way it's cast is that, you know, the private sector emerges first, then the public sector develops and is parasitic upon the private sector. And if you look at it historically, it's, it's really quite the opposite. And I mean, we're now, we've been living through two consecutive crises where that's thrust in our face again. And again, 2008, this crash where you have these ardent free marketeers like Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson massively stepping in with state power and finance to save capitalism from itself. And then again, with this coronavirus downturn, the Federal Reserve doubling its balance sheet, just going into the bond markets, buying corporate bonds directly, the federal government just hosing down the economy with, with money, there would be economic catastrophe if it wasn't for those sorts of socialistic interventions. I'm speaking with Christian Parenti, author of Radical Hamilton from Verso. Now let's talk some about the ideological heritage of Hamilton and, and that, that fight with Jefferson, those t twin strands. Uh, you know, the line, of course, is that Hamilton was an elitist creating, you know, a, a moneyed bourgeoisie using state power. Jefferson was this decentralized man of the people uh, creating this, you know, small, decentralized, uh, self-sufficient economy, um, anti-urban. So what about that ideological struggle? How much truth to that is there and uh, how, how much has it defined our, our, our political history? There's a lot of truth to it at the, at the ideological level, but then contradictions come in in that the Jeffersonian political players very often have to pursue Hamiltonian means. So, so what happens with the War of 1812 after the, the capital is burned and the British you know, withdrawal, the Madison administration is in 1816 compelled, despite its ideology, to start another central bank. So what happens is that this Jeffersonian ideology continually triumphs and then creates crises that force back these Hamiltonian policies. So that's the kind of weird dialectic nature of, this, of the relationship between these two positions, is that there's a constant battle in which the ideology of small government, local control, states' rights triumphs, low taxes, triumphs, that leads to crisis, and regardless of ideology, forces back big government taxation, re-regulation, subsidy, and public ownership, and de facto nationalization. Then inevitably, there's a pushback of this ideology of laissez-faire and uh, the power, uh, power to the locality, states' rights, et cetera, et cetera, deregulation, lower taxes, there's inevitable victories and then follows another economic collapse or a military crisis or some other type of crisis that then, regardless of ideological discourse, forces a return to planning, subsidy and regulation and, very, and public ownership. And Jefferson himself, too, who was contemptuous of manufacturing, contemptuous of cities, actually what ran a nail factory staffed by his slaves that uh, sold the nails to Philadelphia at great profit to himself, right? So <laughs> even he had to uh, make exceptions to his rules. He's the original kind of trust fund back to the lander, you know. He's sitting there at Monticello importing couches and wine from France, writing peons to the yeoman farmer while he's surrounded by, you know, generally on average about 140 enslaved people of African descent who are working for him. And then when he's elected, you know, he, he, on his inauguration, he doesn't want to ride in a carriage or wear any fancy clothes. So he walks wearing homespun and he inherits all this wealth. So it's like he indulges in these, these Walden-esque fantasies about the American character and by implication, the, the nature of the American economy, but, but his own economic reality completely contradicted that. And then he died in debt. Yes. And he, I mean, yes, he died in debt. 
because of his profligacy, but also because of kind of growing agricultural crisis in Virginia. Virginia had been, you know, dependent on tobacco and kind of like just blasted out the soil with too much monocropping of tobacco and was already by the time of the revolution had basically a glut of slaves. And that's part of why Jefferson was in favor and along with other Virginians in favor of ending the slave trade because they wanted to increase the value of their slaves that they were at that point already selling further south. And then once the cotton gin is invented in, I think it's 1793 and cotton manufacturing in the 1800s begins to take off, there's this huge cotton boom in what's now Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and East Texas. And so there's an enormous demand for slaves from the Chesapeake, and so there's this whole like second great um, second middle passage, as it's called, of uh, just sort of exporting elites uh, in very genteel Virginian elites selling slaves to terrible semi-outlaw rednecks that they look down on, who then march these slaves down to Mississippi and frequently sell them to the younger sons of the very same people you know, or at least the same type of people that they had purchased the slaves from. Okay, uh, now, uh, Hamilton's influence beyond the U.S. is uh, probably underappreciated, right? He um, influenced the German development economist list and uh, also, to some degree, uh, Japanese and South Korean development strategy, right? Yeah, so when Hamilton dies, uh, and his ideas are called the American School, and when he dies, they're taken up by Henry Clay of Kentucky, and they become known as the American System, and they're being pursued at the state level. And uh, Frederick List comes to America and spends a number of years here and is very influenced by the American system. He takes these ideas back to Germany, where they become the national system and have influence on the German historical school of economics. And Germany is going through a kind of also a kind of defense, a defensive developmentalism. You know, it's, it only unifies um, all these fragmented German states only finally unify in 1879. But they're, you know, they're feeling like many parts of the world threatened by Britain. Um, so Germany defensively industrializes using these Hamiltonian means. Japan, which has closed itself off for hundreds of years is by the 1850s being threatened by European and American gunboats. And it's clear that the shogunate and, and the kind of ossified, artificially preserved medieval social structure of Japan has to change. So there's the Meiji Revolution of 1868 in which these modernizing urban middle classes overthrow the shogun and reinstall the, the emperor, but really as a figurehead for this developmentalist modernizing agenda and they pull in German technocrats, bureaucrats, businessmen, French uh, similarly and, and very much copy the German model which was a copy of the American model and then similarly uh, the developmentalist states of East Asia, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea copy this model from Japan and China similarly born out of a crisis, an internal crisis, uh, you know, the cultural revolution and famine and, you know, verging on internal warfare in the late 70s. Out of this, pragmatically, the Chinese Communist Party starts experimenting with this export-oriented industrialization, and a lot of that involves a sort of Hamiltonian blueprint. And, you know, it's environmentally destructive, but it's been tremendously successful in just the, like, raw, basic sense of producing wealth. Much, which is you know generally highly um, unevenly distributed, but at the same time, you know, I think it's something like 300 million people in China have been lifted out of poverty by that developmentalist quest. So in East Asia, the report on manufacturers is read. It's understood as oh, this is this is one of the founding documents of this of, of how you do it, of how you force march an economy towards development. And it is one of the, you know, non-socialist responses to the sort of the, the hegemonic arguments of Smith and Ricardo that, that dominate mainstream economics about um, 
free markets and free trade and letting prices do their thing. And, and so this, is, this, Amer- this, this tradition that's hidden to us Americans is recognized in other parts of the country as, as, um, as a countervailing force. No, this, is, this is how you – one of the ways you can resist this, you know, the Washington consensus, the, 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 the free market nostrums that are forced down the throat of every developing economy there is. It's also the kind of thing that's, that's used in East Africa, in Rwanda. Actually, I met an, a diplomat, a Ugandan diplomat in a bar in Brooklyn, uh, right as I was wrapping up the writing of this book. And I, and I was interested in how the Rwandans in particular, the RPF and Paul Kagame, how they had gone from socialist guerrillas to these kind of weird developmentalist nationalists. Like, well, I'm trying to figure out what, what, what is all this about? And I was asking him about this stuff, and he said, he said, we, you know, we were Hamiltonians. You know? <laughs> That's what it was about. It's like the, the thing was development, national sovereignty and development. If socialism could do that, we're down with that. If that path is closed off, we're going to choose something else. But the goal is developing our national economy and securing our nation against these colonial powers. So how did this side of Hamilton get largely forgotten in uh, American politics, American history? Uh, even that damn musical has not been able to revive it. Uh, what, what do you attribute this um, amnesia or aporia to? I think it's the uh, fear of the slippery slope. And it's, it has to do with elites, the kind of stuff that you've been writing about for years. You know, that, that elites, they want to have it both ways. They want a robust infrastructure and an educated workforce, and they want other parties to pay for it. And they are afraid that, as Nathaniel Macon says in, I think it's like 1818, so Hamilton's dead, but he's referring to the same project. Some young, and Nathaniel Macon's a congressman from North Carolina, and some young politician asks him, he says, why are we opposing the federal construction of canals down here in the South. And he says, if we allow Congress to build canals, they will no sooner start emancipating our slaves. So it's that same logic. It's like, I think it's the slippery slope. Okay. So first, what first you, you, you have uh, well-funded research universities that are based on progressive taxation. Then what, then, then it's free tuition. Then what, then free housing for all the students, then free housing for everybody. Then, uh, you know, you tax, tax away 90% of the wealth of the elites, then, then what? Then you, then you start taking over the companies that have made the 1% rich and you start running them as public companies. Where does it stop? So I think, I think, there, I think there's a kind of capitalist class paranoia that militates against acknowledging how things really work. And that's what fuels the constant push to deregulate and privatize and cut taxes. Never mind that, of course, the victories in that regard always lead to crises that force back socialistic state measures. Using the term socialistic in a very kind of, you know, minimal technical sense of just state involvement, not necessarily that these interventions are egalitarian, but they're not market driven. Yes, I can already hear the fingers wagging out there about that that usage. Okay, finally, what can we learn from the Hamilton uh, as we face the climate crisis? Well, that what climate change requires is a kind of reindustrialization. We've got to scrap the existing energy infrastructure, energy economy, and build out a new one. So that's a project of reindustrialization along clean lines. And we could do a lot worse than looking at how our country first industrialized to figure out how that is to be done. And if we look honestly at how it first happened, it's not a story of, you know, brilliant entrepreneurs saving their pennies and operating all their own. It's a story of big government planning and subsidizing, taxing, spending, um, procuring, protecting, using the means proper and planning, not using these things like like taxes and subsidies willy-nilly a la carte, but using them in a concerted fashion to drive the entire national economy towards a desired goal. And that, that, that is how industrialization happened. And if we are going to deal with climate change, it is precisely at that scale and through those means that we are going to euthanize the fossil fuel industry and 
reindustrialize upon the basis of clean energy. I was Christian Parenti, author of Radical Hamilton from Verso. Towards the end of the interview, Christian mentioned elite fears of a slippery slope. Too much intervention could lead to encroachment on capitalist power. That reminded me of a story that Leo Panitch and Sam Gindon, the Canadian political economists who are frequent guests in this show, told me about interviewing the chair of GM back in the 1990s. They asked why the U.S. executive class was so afraid of single-payer health insurance, given how much private health insurance cost them. Didn't their experience in Canada show that they could save money with that kind of system? The GM boss said he understood that, but feared the creation of a new entitlement, and so would rather eat the cost of insuring employees than put his class power at risk. Which further reminds me of Mikhail Kaletsky, the Polish Marxist-Keynesian economist who wrote a classic 1943 essay, Political Aspects of Full Employment. It explained why the capitalist class would never tolerate an unemployment rate tending toward zero for very long. As Kaletsky said, The maintenance of full employment would cause social and political changes which would give new impetus to the opposition of business leaders. Indeed, under a regime of permanent full employment, the sack would cease to play its role as a disciplinary measure. The social position of the boss would be undermined and the self-assurance and class consciousness of the working class would grow. Strikes for wage increases and improvements in conditions of work would create political tension. It is true that profits would be higher under a regime of full employment than they are on average under laissez-faire, but the discipline of the factories and political stability are more appreciated than profits by business leaders. Their class instinct tells them that lasting full employment is unsound from their point of view, and that unemployment is an integral part of the normal capitalist system. I was from Mikhail Kaletsky's 1943 essay, Political Aspects of Full Employment. It's reprinted all over the web, so a Google search would turn it up quickly. The whole thing is well worth reading. His name is spelled K-A-L-E-C-K-I, and Mikhail has no E before the L. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this sum of money by the old Dutch punk band, The X. Till next week, bye. <laughs>